Hi everyone, it's Shakti Durga and welcome to this episode of the Soul Talk podcast. Each episode is going to feature some of the highlights from live trainings, retreats, online classes and presentations that I've done around the world. If you find value in it, please text the link to the podcast to a friend or share it with your networks. I look forward to connecting with you soon. Namaste. For me, when we're looking at any of the ancient mysteries, whether it be Western or Eastern, what we're always looking for is the keys to how can we lead better lives? How can we be more inspired and inspiring? And how can our consciousness move from the limitations inherent in the structure of having an ego as the vehicle through which we're riding through physical life? And how can we reach into the richness and the everlasting kind of consciousness of our souls? We all have souls. We know we do. Even, I think, those who have a tendency towards atheism or agnosticism, I think those people also, because I used to be one of them, have a feeling that there is definitely something. don't know what it is. There's a something. And that something's inside me too because I can feel it. Don't understand it. Possibly I just need to go and have another drink. Forget about that deep end stuff. But when we start to be, uh, something inside our soul starts awakening and it starts to tremble almost inside. It starts to get to us in a good way that we want some answers and that possibly life hasn't given us all the answers that we find satisfactory. What are the answers to the big questions? What are we doing here? What's it all mean? And for me, the ancient mysteries give us very good clues and direction about ways that we can pierce the surface level of life and go into something deeper and more profound, and which I personally have found very satisfying over uh, the course of the last 25 years where I've been delving very diligently and it's been my passion. So whether it's East or West, the mysteries are revealing stuff to us. In the context of relationship, if we look at Ganesha, Understanding just a tiny little bit about the story of Ganesha can give us some clues to how it can help us. So Ganesha was born of the Divine Mother, and in this particular paradigm of uh, thought and understanding of creation, the Divine Mother is seen as whatever's in physical manifest form, whatever has energy and life force in it, whatever can move, whatever can think, whatever can digest food, whatever is capable of building anything, thinking anything, I think I said that already, whatever is capable of loving, all of that is seen as the divine feminine, sometimes called Shakti, sometimes called Parvati. Well, there's about 330 million names for it all. We don't have to know them all. So Parvati one day, she was married to Lord Shiva in this mythology, and Lord Shiva is the god of the beyond form. He's the god of light transcendental stuff. He's the God of meditation. He's the God of just meditate. Don't worry about all this earthly stuff because the everlasting life is what's so entertaining and exciting and fulfilling. Don't worry about all this down here stuff. So he's the God of transcendental, married to the goddess of earthliness. And in this mythology, this marriage is very sacred and in a couple of weeks we'll be celebrating that marriage at Shivaratri 
which is another time for sacred relationship of our spirit and soul, you could say, or our mind and our soul, that kind of marriage. Anyway, one day she was out with all his mates going off on some adventure somewhere, and Parvati was at home by herself, and she thought, hmm, might take a bath. Then when she's in the bath, she thought, I'd like to have a baby and be the goddess. She didn't muck around with all that stuff that's normally necessary for having babies. No pregnancy, no labour pains, nothing. She just was in the bath, and you know how some of your dry skin comes off in the water? She just rolled a bit of that together, breathed life into it, and it formed a baby, a beautiful little boy. And so within about 10 minutes, he'd grown to be looking like a five-year-old, and within about an hour, he was fully grown. Because she's the goddess, she can do that stuff. And she called him Ganesha. And she said, Ganesha, I really want to stay in the bath a bit longer and when I get out we'll talk, but can you just go and guard the door because I don't really want to be disturbed in my bath. I'm so happy that I've grown you up so quickly. I'd like to rest for a minute and then I'll get dressed and I'll come out and we'll talk. So Ganesha goes out and he's guarding the door. So here we have in this mythology a being that's born of flesh. That's the mythology, being born of flesh. And that's what we are in our egoic consciousness. And then what happens is Shiva comes home. Ganesha doesn't know who Shiva is. And so he says, you can't come in because Parvati's told him no one's allowed in. She didn't mean Shiva, but Ganesha was taking her very literally. Anyway, so Shiva is a bit irate at some man he didn't know telling him that his own wife wouldn't let him in the house. So an argument ensued, and this argument went on for a thousand years. It was not a peaceful argument. It was messy. Weapons were involved. Blows were involved. And both of them, because he was born of the goddess, he could fight really well, and because Shiva was Shiva, he's indomitable. You can't beat Shiva. So in the end, after a thousand years, I don't know where Parvati was at this page, she's still in the bath. <laughs> Years, but we won't let that stop the story. So anyway, along <laughs> comes Shiva, and he finally chops the head off Ganesha. And at that very instant, Parvati is now dressed in all her finery. She comes out and says, Shiva, what have you done? You've just chopped the head off our child. And Shiva goes, ah, oh, did I? This is terrible. And so we also don't know what happened to his head, but his head vanished. So he's a headless child at this stage. And then, um, so they said, we need to go and get the head of the first animal you see that's pointing north, north being the direction of wisdom. So they go out and the first being that they come to is an elephant. And there's a whole backstory about that elephant too. But we won't go there just at this moment. And so the elephant says, sure, take my head, no problem. They chop off his head and they bring the elephant's head back and glue it onto these kids body, and weirdly enough it works. It's mythology. They can do what they like. Whenever the stories are really crazy like that, I always look for the deeper significance. What's going on beneath the surface here? What, what's this telling us about us? And what I find that story is telling us about us is that we are born of the, of the physical, but sooner or later, that physical consciousness, which you relate to your ego's consciousness, gets lopped off by infinite light. And that's what Shiva represents. And when the infinite light lops your head off, then instead of having nothing like you think you might have, you actually get 
uh, unified with universal consciousness. And so as Ganesha lost one head and gained another one, the elephant is always a symbol of strength and a symbol of wisdom. So he was given both strength and wisdom by having the divine come and go lop off your head. And so for me, this story is a lot about the relationship between the ego and the higher soul and how the higher soul is always fighting with the ego, really the same way she was fighting with the body of Ganesh when he was whole and entire and made of earth. And there's this mighty battle that takes place. And it takes place for thousands of years through multiple lifetimes. One ego gets destroyed, another one gets built in the next life you become, and the fight continues. That one gets destroyed to get another body, and the fight goes on. Until finally, um, the light pierces everything, and we can feel utterly defeated as that's going on. It can be a time where you feel worse than you've ever felt. You can feel absolutely shocking, as though you've wasted your whole life, as though, you know, you've been in delusion. But then if you stick with the process of asking for the divine to help and to bring in the higher consciousness, then what happens is it's almost like you literally are reborn. I can see where the language of born again comes from. I think people use it a bit too often and uh, without enough justification a lot of the time because people use it to mean I've found a faith that I like, then I'm born again into that faith. The way I'm using it is, I'm born to my higher soul. So it's different. But be that as it may, if we look at the Christian um, spiritual motifs of the same kind of thing, because I think when truth is universal, you find the truth in different places. And in Christianity, we have fabulous artwork of Archangel Michael with his sword at the throat of a demon. Have you seen that artwork? You know, you can Google it. Um, it'll be everywhere. But anyway, there's stained glass windows all over Europe with things like that on it. Archangel Michael is not lopping the head off the demon, but he's got his knife ready to, and he's defeated the demon. And so in these mythologies, the demon is a symbol for our ego, which is a self-serving, controlling, approval-seeking, attention-seeking kind of entity. And then what's happening is Archangel Michael is saying, well, the higher consciousness is going to prevail here. And this is the consciousness of how can I love, how can I help someone else, how can I be love on legs, how can I merge in a space of um, the beauty and tranquility and grace of real love that's not needy. It's actually full, you know, it feels, feels incredible. It can feel a bit like that when we first fall in love with someone, that feeling of fullness and incredible love. It's just that usually our egos can't sustain that and they pull back because they're frightened. So the fear that we have is actually in the egoic body. The love that we feel is in our soul. And so egos aren't capable of love. They're capable of greediness. When we feel love, we're actually feeling our souls. Every single one of you has felt your soul. And it's a real part of life. And the thing about what we do here at Shandu Mission is we're trying to work out, well, how do you live from that soul presence of love all the time? And that brings peace. And it also brings wisdom because we can work out how to handle some of the more complex situations that arise in life with more wisdom when our foundation is actually love in the big sense of the word love 
rather than coming from fear. When we come from fear, we're going to contract. It's going to be about me. It's going to be about how can I control you so I can feel safe? How can I get everything perfect so I can feel safe? How can I get approval so I can feel safe? How can I, you know, make sure I'm getting along with everybody, give away my power to everyone so that I just say yes, 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 yes to everyone so I can feel safe? Do you see what the ego does? Whereas the soul in its magnificence doesn't play those games. And so for me, my spirituality is about how do I become even more steadfast and stable in that big love? I don't always get it right, but the odds are improving, you know? And when I do get it wrong, I know how to clean it up. And I've learned to be diligent about that cleaning process. And so as we do that, over time what happens is the, the relative balance in our consciousness between our higher soul and our ego, it shifts. And if we're talking about shifts in consciousness, that's what we're really talking about. We're talking about that the soul starts talking louder. <laughs> and even though our fears come up and we might clench, we're able to expand into what would love do now, what would compassion do now. And I don't at all mean be a pushover. I'm not talking about namby-pamby, lovey-dovey, fluffy stuff at all. Although I don't mind a bit of that if you know what I'm um, But I'm talking about deep abiding love, deep abiding love that has got the balls to say no when no is what's needed. You know, it's not wussy. Do you sort of understand what I'm saying? It's the love that can protect you as well because the love is not only externally focused, the love is internally focused as much as externally. And the love is not neediness. The love is not, I need your approval, I need your attention, I need you to look after me, I need you to serve me. It's not that. It's a different thing, different vibe. And so as we're going through relationship land, which I think is the king of kings in terms of spiritual pathways, just go have a relationship. They'll sort you. They'll show you how much you've actually learned and how much is just theory that you have not embodied. Just go have a relationship. Sort yourself out. Do you see what I mean? And so here in Shanti Mission, we keep going over stuff about relationships. We just do it and do it and do it and do it and do it until we start finding that in those challenging times, we have so many resources that instead of feeling lost and burnt out and terrified and, and you know that the relationship must be going to end now, instead of that, we can find resources that were not there 20 years ago because we hadn't built them yet. We hadn't got strong in the basic structures of how to love and how to love with wisdom, how to love with sincerity, with purity even. And I think purity is a much maligned word in this age because when we think of purity, sometimes we think of Puritans. And I don't at all mean Puritanism. Because as I understand that philosophy, there was a lot of judgment in it. There was a lot of 
you know, you'll go to hell if you do this, that, and the other thing. That's not at all the consciousness I'm talking about. It's not what I'm talking about, purity. It's about when the chips are down, after I get over my initial shock and my initial feeling of fear or retraction in this relationship where you've just done something I don't like and I go, oh, back again, because that's the way, isn't it? Blah, blah, tit for tat, bickering, all that stuff. I start to see those as points of power, points of spiritual power, where I can go, ah, I need to do something here because this is not okay. And I've never yet found anybody <coughs> who improved their relationships just by telling their partner they have to change. <laughs> I found it to be a really unsuccessful strategy personally. And so what I have found more successful is working on me. And when I do that, all kinds of amazing things happen. And I don't just mean with my beautiful partner Shiva, but I mean in the world in general. We don't just have our intimate partnership. We, we've got all the people we work with. We've got all the people that live in our street. We've got, you know, relatives, for better or worse. We've got relatives. Sometimes that's a big gig, dealing with your relatives and working out, well, what do you do with that? How do you be love on legs with that? We've got exes. X, the X, look at that. And um, I think that's a whole spiritual path in itself. And offering a gift that keeps giving, isn't it? Just is, just helps us unending. We have teenagers. <laughs> so many opportunities for growth and learning. And if instead of freaking out and thinking uh, that I have to get myself out of this, we get out of the pain and suffering into wisdom and then we transform this. We at least transform our own consciousness around the relationship or about what's happening. We see it from a different angle. We're able to expand our awareness like Ganesha did. Suddenly we become full of light and then relationships miraculously transform. So that's my uh, intention of today's satsang and the intention of most of the work we do here. Even when we're busy doing um, sacred ceremonies in Buddha land or Vedic land or our Christian temple, our angelic temple, all this stuff we do, it's really only scaffolding so that what we can do is find the light inside of us and have that Shiva cut your head off thing. It's our time on the cross, you know, to use a Christian analogy. And in the Christian temple, you'll see we have a cross in the corner. It's a white cross and overlaid with a gold waterfall coming over it of a chiffony kind of fabric. And we constructed it that way because the cross for me is a deep metaphorical sacredness around that we all have our burdens. You know, Buddha said um, that life is suffering. Not much of an optimist, our Buddha, but he did say life is suffering. And you've got to say there's no one in me that hasn't had any. Is there anyone here who's never had any suffering? No. So we're going to have suffering and that's our cross. And then what do we do with it? What, what do we do with that? And so when I look at that cross, it's a reminder, okay, I might be going through a bad time, but I'm not going to lose my spirit into that. I'm going to use the opportunity 
to actually become a better person, to have a heightened consciousness, to transform something in me, and to bring more of my soul's consciousness into my lived, felt, experienced life to replace a narrower consciousness that I'm now surrendering on the cross. So that's how I see it. Does that sound doable? Yeah. Thanks for joining me on this episode of Soul Talk. I hope the podcast has served you in creating a happier and more abundant life. If you've enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to connect with me, head over to shaktidurga.com. Daddy.